Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Chronicles 4. I don't know about you all, but when I read through the Bible, I get to 1 Chronicles and I practice my speed reading skills. <laughs> this person beget this person, this person beget, and I say, who cares? The only people that care are Old Testament guys, so I just trust Brother Hanky to tell me this is why it's important, and I move on. But in the midst of the boring, unpronounceable names, all of a sudden we break out into an oasis of two verses. I often wonder, why does God do that? It must be important. Verses 9 and 10. And Jabez was more honorable than his brethren, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bear him with sorrow. And Jabez called on God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that thy hand might be with me, and that thou wouldst keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And I like this last statement. And God granted him that which he requested. What is it about Jabez or what is it about his prayer that allows God to write this last statement? That God granted his request. We don't know a whole lot about Jabez. But for some reason, God places his prayer here. He makes four requests. We're not going to look at all four this morning. But he gets our attention by saying that God grants him the request. He begins by calling on the God of Israel because he wants nobody to make a mistake as to who his source is. He calls on the one who has the power to answer prayer. And God places it there. This, it's a simple prayer, but it's effective. Let me just say to you this morning, God is eagerly waiting to answer prayer that's in his will and for his glory. And I believe that's the secret to this prayer. I want to preach this morning something simple. Jabez prayer. Four points which I already told you, we're not going to get to all four of them, but I'll look at the first one. It said, oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed. Jabez is saying, I'm the one that needs prayer. Fanny Crosby was in a, a service, and as the invitation is given, she senses that a lot of people are moving toward the altar, and she can, can hear people as they're crying out to God. And she writes this poem. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Yet a desire that God would speak to her heart. A relationship with God, folks, is an intensely personal thing. We have an idea that, well, brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so, they need revival. The truth is, the message most people enjoy are the ones that go over our heads and hit the guy behind us. 
And we're bound to miss God's blessing unless we pray Jabez's prayer that thou would bless me indeed. The old Negro spiritual said, it's me, it's me, O God, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. We need to seek after God. And let me just say to you that all across our country, I sense that there is a, a desert of people that will seek God. We just take him for granted. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, you know the verse well. As a heart panteth at their water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. Have you ever been really thirsty? I know after playing sports for a while, you are thirsty and you can drink a gallon of water. I'm not talking about that kind of thirst. I'm talking about really thirsty. I think in my life, I've only been that thirsty once. Back in the interior of Brazil, it was early afternoon, and I, was, I had rented a bike. We didn't have the money to own a bike, so I rented one. And I was out riding, and I went further from home than I should have. And it got hot, 120 degrees in the shade, and there was no shade. I mean, this is a time when you cast no shadow. The sun is straight overhead. And I hadn't taken a bottle of water or anything, and I got thirsty. And I sensed that I was no longer sweating. That's not good. And my tongue began to swell. I was having problems all now, and it just I couldn't. And I was really thirsty. And you get to a place where you're no longer thirsty. You're just miserable. And there was no water anywhere. The part of Brazil that we lived in was arid, kind of desert-like, except during the rainy season. This was not rainy season. And I happened to ride by a mud puddle. And I stopped my bike, and I went and took my handkerchief and filled it full of mud, and then twisted it out and sucked out the water. That's thirst. I've often thought, have I ever felt that thirsty for God? It's one thing to be theologically sound, and we ought to be. It's one thing to be a fundamentalist, and I am. But does my heart pant for God? And all over our country, I visited churches that are theologically sound. They use the right Bible. They have good music. But somehow, God, is not there. And we go through the motions of religion. But there's no hunger. And we walk out the same way we came in. Is it no wonder that we're told that 70% of young adults jettison Christianity when they leave home? Because they find no reality. Because there's no hungering for God. Remember in Genesis 32, Jacob is all, all alone, and he wrestles with the Lord. Come morning, the Lord says, you've got to let me go. And Jacob makes that great statement. 
I'll not let you go until you bless me. Have you ever grabbed to hold the throne of grace and say, God, I'll not let go until you speak to me, until you do something in my life? Or do we just do our devotions? Remember, I was just a little younger than most of you. I was a, just graduated from high school. We had a Bible conference in Michigan. And the preacher challenged us to read the Bible until God spoke to you. I had never thought about that. And so I told the Lord, Lord, I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to read until you speak to my, my heart. And so I went back home and that night I decided I was going to do that. So I was going to start reading the book of Romans. And I read chapter 1 and I was prepared to read the entire New Testament if that's what it took. And after a few verses, there was a verse written in gold that jumped off the page. And God spoke to a 17-year-old kid. And I held the Bible up and said, God, did you say this? And by the way, every time I ask him, he says yes. And God spoke to me and it changed my view of the Bible. It became a living book, not just a textbook from which to preach. Businessmen in New York City came to Charles Finney and asked him what it would take for God to send revival to New York City. Charles Finney is supposed to have said, when you're ready to put padlocks on your business for six months, then God will break in on the scene. We need to hunger and thirst. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. A man who is drowning will give anything for one gulp of fresh air. Will you give anything for one touch of God? We need to see God that way. You see, it's not just about studying about him. We do that. It's not just about believing in him. We do that. But too many of us have theology on ice. When I was dropped off at college for my freshman year, I um, had looked forward to school, to college. I, I thought Bible college had to be the porch to heaven. I mean to tell you, this is a place where we're going to study the Bible and be with people that really love the Lord. And I could hardly wait. Got there, and sure enough, we dumped off, we packed my, took my stuff, put it in my room. And I had two, two uncles. I, I have a, uh, a, good, a, a, ba- a good strong family background in that there were three boys, younger boys in that family. There were 13 kids all together in my father's family. But three younger boys, all three of them were in ministry. And one of my uncles came to me and he said, Bruce, he said, I want to warn you. And he gave me a Bible. He says, never, never, never give up your personal relationship with God. Every day. He said, because Bible college is the easiest place to backslide in all the world. I said, no, 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 it can't be. I said, we're going to study the Bible. And he said, that's the point. He said, it's going to become a textbook to you. He said, be careful. 
And I found it to be true. And I would suggest to you no differently. It's easy for this book to become a textbook and not the living words of God. We desperately need to seek him. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Jabez knew that. And then the next thing he does, he says, enlarge my coasts. God, give me a divine dissatisfaction with narrow horizons. I want to challenge you guys. When you graduate, leave here and go build you a church. Go build you a church somewhere where there's no other church. I, I've, I've thought about this, and you know, I still have dreams. I don't know if I can fulfill them, but I have, I have a dream that, that uh, we would take three, four guys, call them a Delta Force, and go to a place like Philadelphia and build a church. Because the truth is, many of these cities, they believe God's dead. There's no reality. Remember when Paul comes and his accusation was, these men who have turned the world upside down have come hither also. I don't suggest they weren't turning it upside down. They were turning it right side up. But we need to have some men who will come into communities and turn the world upside down and say, God is real. He's alive. But somehow we go, preacher, times have changed. That may be, but God hasn't. And the message hasn't. It's the same God. It's the same Bible. It's the same gospel that changes the lives of people. Somewhere we've got to get fired up and get this grip our soul with the power of God to change lives. Enlarge my coasts. What is the sin that's robbing the church of its power? You say, well, we don't pray enough, and we don't. Say, we don't study the Bible enough, and we don't. We don't soul in enough, and we don't. But what is the sin that's robbing the church of its power? It's the sin of satisfaction. It's the fact that somehow we just have given up. We say, well, it doesn't work, and nobody's building big churches anymore, so I guess it can't be done. How would you know? you tried? See, businesses are never satisfied with the business that we're doing. Between my college and going back to grad school and pastoring, I played Jonah for a while. God had closed the door to going back to Brazil, and I just said, Fine. I can't go back to Brazil, then I'm going to go make some money. And I worked for Sears as a manager trainee for a while. One of the things I discovered is that every day, my boss would come to whatever department I was running, and he would have figures from the previous year and say, are you doing better? And I better be able to show that I was. Not just in total resale, in sales, but in, in, in profit. Every day. Let me ask you a question. 
If the Holy Spirit were to come to you every day and say, is your relationship with God better today than it was a year ago? What would you say? I've never yet met a good salesman that's not a crybaby. Sir McIntosh says it's right to be satisfied with what we have, but it's never right to be satisfied with what we are for God. Vance Havner used to say the good becomes the enemy of the best. And that's what's happening. We're satisfied with good theology. And I'm not suggesting that we compromise theology. Uh, we're satisfied the fact that we've got good music. And by God's grace, we ought not compromise our music. We ought not compromise our Bible. But let me tell you something. We can't rest on those things. They ought to be foundational for what we can do. In moving ahead. God, the church people are allowing themselves to be satisfied with the good. With this attitude, we'll never have the best. Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind. Martin Luther says, the greatest temptation that Satan has for the church is for it to become comfortable. It's the duty of God's men not only to comfort the distress, but to distress the comfortable. I was, I was telling somebody the other day in, in my church that, that Brother Lucan referred to in Millington. Uh, I did some stuff that I would never do again. Uh, but that particular community just lent itself to doing some crazy stuff. And uh, we had an auditorium that would seat about 120. And every week we were putting in more than 300 into this auditorium. You'd have to show up 20 minutes before the service started if you wanted to sit. And half of the people would just stand for the entire service. And um, I heard some rumors that some of the people that were coming, they were just visitors, didn't like my preaching. Didn't like what I was saying because I was preaching against sin. And so I got fired up one morning. And I said, I understand some of you don't like my preaching. Let me tell you, God doesn't like your living. And if... <laughs> And if you don't like it, you can leave. There's no, there's no bars on the windows or doors. We need the room. <laughs> These guys went back to GM, Buick in Flint. And told, so you wouldn't believe what our preacher said. Fifty more people show up to hear me say it. Let me just say something about that. There's a world that's dying to hear the truth. Now, I didn't say it in the most kind way. Understand, I was just barely 30 years old. But um, we saw a whole lot of people saved in that church. One Sunday, I gave the invitation. I preached on the cross, gave the invitation. Seventy people come forward for salvation. Adults, not children, adults. I said, now what do we do? Because I believe you ought to deal with each one individually. And we were in trouble. We didn't have enough people to deal with all these people. You say, well, it can't be done today. How would you know? You won't know until you try it. Now I've got to be careful, especially since we're live streaming. I'm getting tired of people making excuses when they've never tried. 
we pastored in Colorado, a city in southeast Colorado. Even Coloradians did not know where Springfield, Colorado. We said, we're in Springfield. They said, oh, Missouri. I said, no, Colorado. Yeah, we have a Springfield in Colorado. A little town in the county of Baca. Did you know that Baca is in the Bible? And it's not good. There was 1,200 people in this town of Springfield. There were 12 churches. We were the only gospel-preaching church in town. We were told you couldn't build anything there because the town was dying. And it, it was. I got a youth pastor and my wife. Between the two of them, they started a Wednesday night program. And between the two groups, they averaged 80 young people a Wednesday night. Twelve teenagers got saved the first year. Don't tell me it can't be done until you try it. Don't hide behind the excuses. And too many preachers have said, well, it just can't be done. Don't listen to them. Read the book. The message to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 was repent. And I hear very little of Christians repenting today. We even, even hear less of the consequences of not repenting. Say we need more prayer, prayer, and we do, but not near as much as we need old-fashioned convicting of the Holy Spirit. We're wearing out the carpets in our church by walking down them and rededicating. We've been rededicating the old flesh so that the Lord, so much I believe the Lord is sick of it. Vance Havner said the church is running an old Adam Improvement Agency. God have mercy on us. We say, oh, God, help me to do better next time. And God's more concerned about last time when I didn't get it taken care of. Revelation 3, 3, 19 says, it means I love, I rebuke, and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Are we zealous Christians? Are we satisfied with Bible study? Are we satisfied with debating theological theories? It's been a while ago, but I once lived in men's dorms. And I remember the bull sessions. Let me suggest to you guys, eternity will not be impacted by your debates on Calvinism. The angels are not impressed with your debate on the Bible version issue. But let me tell you, heaven will, or hell will quiver when you start talking about planting a church. When you start talking about going to a mission field and turning that mission field upside down for Christ, hell shakes and trembles because that's one thing they're not equipped to handle. It's men and women of God that are shot through with the call of God and the power of God in their lives. A satisfied Christian is my soul's getting all well, all right. I can settle down right here. I fought a good fight, and uh, I'll just sit back and relax. 
Because really nobody expects anything more of me than that. Let me tell you, no man is ever so tall he not, need not stretch. Nor is a man so short he never need to stoop. Don't ever get to place where you don't grow. I never thought this would happen, and I don't know how it happened. But chronologically, I'm one of the older people on staff. Used to be I was the young kid. I'd go to pastor's conferences or pastor's meetings, and I was the kid. I still feel like the kid. (laughs) Don't laugh. It's not funny. But even at my age, I'm in the process of taking a course online right now on something that I need to fine-tune myself in in the area of counseling. So for my birthday, my wife bought me this course, and I'm working on it. Don't ever get to the place where you don't need to learn. Because when I stop learning or stop having a desire to learn, you just dig a hole and put me in and put the dirt in over me. There was a revival up in Toronto, Canada years ago. And after the service, a bunch of Christians went down to the basement and they were sitting around in a circle and they were testifying as to what God was doing in their lives. There was an older man leaning up against the post, listening to all of this. And there was a lull in the testimonies, and the old man said, well, he said, when you've been saved as long as I've been, you'll know that the Christian life is kind of like a hot bath. When you get into the tub, it's pretty hot. But after a while, it's not so hot. One young man who was prepared to sell his business and go away to Bible college vaulted over his steel folding chair, grabbed the old man by the nap of the neck and shoved him up against the post and said, tell me, tell me now. Is what you said true? Is it doesn't it get better every day? He says, because I'm not selling my business for Half hot tub of water. How's your heart today? Is it lukewarm? Has your Christian life become a lukewarm bath? The problem is, lukewarmness steals into your soul in a quiet and respectful manner. It really does. If it only had a horns and a hoof and smack of criminal or dressed in red pajamas carrying a pitchfork, it would alarm us. But it's so decent. It's so well behaved. It chloroforms its victims and kills them without a scream of horror or terror. And we just kind of fall into it. All this following may be true. I could be born again. We could be obedient. Our lives could be separated. Our doctrine may be right. Our soul winning may be right. Our Christians' duties faithfully discharged. But the truth is, the animating power of the Spirit of God is gone. 
And it's not that the Spirit of God has changed or that he's not willing to do great mighty things. We just don't believe it anymore. And somehow we've allowed the culture to determine how we're going to do ministry. I'm going to be misunderstood, but I'm going to say it anyway. We criticize the mega church movement, and we ought. But at least they're doing something. They ought not get a corner on changing the world. We have all the tools, and we're doing it right. Find you a place somewhere on the planet. And, and, and by the way, don't do it in a place where everybody else is. My wife and I have talked about this, and I'm going to get in trouble for this too. That's all right. I keep getting in trouble. We talked about what would happen if we ever moved back to Philadelphia. Where would we go to church? Now understand, greater Philadelphia has three million in population. And we said, there's not a place where we could go and be comfortable. There's something dead wrong about that. There's people from all over the world coming to Philadelphia. It's one of the port of entries. The mission field has come to Philadelphia. A statistic that just blew my mind when I first went there in 91 is that there is a rectangle 100 miles wide beginning in Washington, D.C. up to Boston. One quarter of America's population lives in that rectangle. Only 1% of gospel preaching churches is in the same place. It's a preacher, but it's tough there. People are nasty. They're nasty everywhere. Yeah, Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly shove. (laughs) And that's just the way it is. The other day, uh, we were out driving somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And something happened. I don't remember what it was. And I went, ah! That's the Philadelphia salute. So I still have it in me. Go to Northeast Philly. Go downtown Philly. Plant a church. Go to New York City. Go to Baltimore. You've got to really have courage if you're going to go to Baltimore. Plant a church. And watch God do great and mighty things. Jabez said that you'd bless me indeed and enlarge my coast. Give me a divine dissatisfaction with narrow horizons. Because God is a great God and he's still in the miracle working business. Father, I would pray that from this group of young people that you would call a mighty army 
to go all over this country, all over the world. Give them, Father, a divine dissatisfaction with status quo. That they might see the world through your eyes and realize the time is short. And Father, that you might call them to a great service. 